Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. Today, Marie and I have the privilege of speaking with the Outreach Coordinator of Bowdoin Sustainability's Office, Bethany Taylor. Bethany has been with Bowdoin since 2016, coming to the college from a history of education, environmentalism, and advocacy. She has worked as an educator at a riparian Superfund site in Montana, as a ski patroller, hut crew member, caretaker, naturalist, and backcountry construction worker in New Hampshire, as a disaster relief volunteer in Mississippi, a newspaper reporter and trail builder along the Androscoggin River, as a school librarian in Massachusetts, and finally as a writer. She attended St. Lawrence University and has an MS in Environmental Studies with a focus on creative writing from the University of Montana. At Bowdoin, she works with the Student Corps of EcoReps to implement on-campus, dorm-specific, and college-wide sustainability initiatives. She has been integral in meeting the college's declaration of carbon neutrality prior to its set goal of 2020 and is actively working on the next climate action plan to be rolled out by 2030. Bethany, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're hoping to start a bit with your background, to paint a mosaic of just who the Bethany Taylor is. So, where are you originally from, and could you tell us your first thoughts or introduction of the notion of sustainability, or environmentalism, if you want to extend it there? Um, I was born in Berlin, New Hampshire, and I grew up there and in Hopkinton, New Hampshire, which is in the south-central part, right next to Concord, which is the capital. Um, and growing up in Berlin, I used to walk across the Androscoggin River to get to my elementary school every day. So being in Brunswick has always felt very familiar and like, oh yes, it's the same, the same river. And the idea of being an adult working right next to the same river that I went to kindergarten next to is uh, very poetic in terms of the environmental writing aspect of, of my life. Um, but in terms of official sustainability, uh, I would say it's been it's been a journey to to understand it. When I was um, when I was a college student and I was in my angry at everything because the world is messed up phase, and I was like, oh, sustainability is just like <laughs> a fancy word for greenwashing everything, and I can't believe that's like a field that people work in, and like, what does that even mean? Um, and then eventually, when I stopped being as uh, angry about the world, I realized that it's all the same things that I grew up talking about. Um, My mother works in uh, land conservation and always has, and my father was an urban planner in specifically and only in New Hampshire. So there's a lot of how do you build resilient and vibrant small towns and how do we have access to natural spaces. So the whole idea of creating a community that continues, which is basically sustainability, is the stuff that I grew up talking about. And then the more I've dug into the different ways that different communities work on being sustainable, the more it's like, oh, geez, I really could go back and talk to my 19-year-old self and be like, kid, calm down. Like, <laughs> like anger is a useful fuel for some environmental things, but also it's, uh, it's exhausting and really depressing. <laughs> so kind of going off of that, um, do you want to talk a little bit more about how you differentiate between like sustainability and environmentalism? Like, how do those terms sort of inform 
the way that you think about your work and like life in general. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's. Um, I often think of sustainability as kind of the um, the solution side of environmentalism. And if you, I mean, again, nothing nothing is ever really divided because of integrated systems and all of that. But particularly at Spoden, if you have to like draw lines around things, then sustainability are the people who are worrying about the the weight of insulation in walls and how much energy buildings are using and why people in dorms like how can we get people to shut their windows because that really is a huge part of dealing with our emissions and the efficiency of our buildings and that sort of is in the sustainability side of things and then you have environmental studies and the other academic things and they're more focused on research and learning and how to sort of looking at the environmental ideology of things so I feel like sustainability is environmentalism in action in some ways and yeah. there's a thousand different ways to be an active environmentalist but in terms of sustainability it sort of is how do we build uh, a structure that we can be a, a good community in, and whether that's a structure like a passive house design dorm or it's a structure like oh how about everybody's welcome here? How about that for sustainability? Um, I think that that is, it's different ways of putting ideas into action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. We talked a lot yeah. in our first episode about like the difference between environmentalism and sustainability and that's a very nuanced perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so moving on, uh, sort of in our formation of the idea of this podcast slash radio show, um, we're interested in the stories that uh, people have surrounding sustainability, and people within this realm of work often have a story to share, or um, I guess something that really sticks out to them as being like impactful upon their life within the realm of sustainability. Do you happen to have a story that you could share with us? Um, I have several stories, and okay. some of them are even shared always so two, two weeks ago, I went to the Adirondacks, um, and it was for the purpose of a reunion weekend. I went to St. Lawrence University, and this wasn't a St. Lawrence official reunion. This was just a reunion for their Adirondack semester, which is an amazing program where rather than being on campus, they take 12 kids who want to do this. Like, you have to sign up and apply. It's not like you're constricted into going um, to live in a village of yurts on a lake in the Adirondacks. And <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it's like coastal studies, except that it's fully residential and it's farther away from campus. So the idea of you like you're going abroad to the woods um, is, is sort of baked into it. And it was it was really amazing to to be back there. And I was uh, I was the second year of students to do the semester as a program. And I was the first year that was living in the yurts. They had to set up in a Boy Scout lodge the year before, but I was the first actually in the yurts. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of um, rocky parts of the, the semester. Um, my, my younger sister who did it four years after I did had a completely different experience. And she, <laughs> she was on the reunion weekend also and kept talking about how I just, She's like, Bethany, you were really kind of gross that whole semester. Every time we saw you, like, so there was no way to shower. And, like, looking back, it's like, oh, no, there really, there really wasn't. Um, 
there was a lake. <laughs> yeah. And you, but you had to like boil a five gallon bucket of water and then hoist it up on a pulley system and then turn on this like like jerry-rigged system that looked like all the broken parts from a hardware department shoved into the bottom of another five-gallon bucket. So you're taking this like drizzly, weasel drooling shower while you're standing in a shower stall in a hemlock forest on oh the edge of a lake and being like, I feel like Thoreau had it better. He went home and like took out bath in his mom's house, but like this is what I'm doing. Um, so that was, that was part of my experience there. But going back and seeing what, what the yurt village has become in the so let's see they started it in 2000 so this is the the 20th year of people doing mm -hmm. the Adirondack semester um, and just seeing how much better it is they have a this little timber frame cabin that works as their kitchen and sort of a community hub so they have a gathering space so they're able to focus on the community parts of living in the yurts not just being freezing cold <laughs> all the time and talking to the students that have done it since they've really they figured out a better balance between the experiential education and the academics mm -hmm. when i did it it was like you're living in yurts and that's great but they were trying to prove the academic worth of the program and uh, that meant that we were busy all the time. I did more work the semester I was in the woods than any other semester in college. And now they've sort of been like, oh, we need to like build in time for them to think through and process this experience. So it was wonderful to see this, this program adapt and change and yet continue to provide a solid experience. And it was a very, being, being able to have been at the beginning and see a sustained community and see what's changed and how it's improved. It's just this great idea of the, like if we can build towards a sustainable future, it's gonna be so much better than the past. <laughs> uh, and I think that's really exciting. And I mean, the other part of that is that I was doing the Adirondack semester um, during the fall of 2001. So wow. my experience of September 11th, 2001 was vastly different than the majority of the world and America. Um, I mean, we, we heard about it, we, we listened on radio, some of us went into town and watched footage, but it didn't have the same everyday impact of seeing the news and all of the just really dramatic uh, cultural impact. And while I'm sure that there's some of that that we could examine that is like, oh, it's privileged escapism to be living in the woods while things are happening, and I, I really don't discount the just jaw-dropping grief of, of families and friends that lost people. But for me, it meant that I got this just full-on experience in understanding that the way everybody says things are isn't how they have to be. Hmm. And I think that's been really, really important just as I work in sustainability. We're like, okay, well, we, we have a freedom of thought. If we want to build something better than what was here, we don't have to be bound by what everybody else is doing. Like, let's let's have a little think and see what might be more fun. Yeah. So yeah. that is, that's a long <laughs> answer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a sip of tea, wet <laughs> <laughs> <Wash> my throat. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the coastal studies, like uh, marine science semester, and some of those things that you talked about like really echo with me. I think we, some, some students from past years like got together and we sort of chatted, and it's really interesting to see how like, the program changes, but also the cohort changes, and there's a ton of variety within it. But I'm really excited for that program, especially since they're kind of ramping up at the Coastal Study Center with like construction yeah. and lots of new facilities. 
So I think yeah. that the community of that shared experience, even though yeah. everybody has their own yeah. different amazing thing, yeah. you can get together with people and be like, oh my God, that you was know. Yeah. Like, like it's, it was it's a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so um, at the beginning of the episode, um, we gave you a brief introduction of your time before Bowdoin, but can you tell us um, how you ended up at Bowdoin and tell us a little bit more about your position currently? Sure. So one of the great things about my job at Bowdoin is that I was working at the L.L. Beans Returns Warehouse, and on the lunch break, I got a call from Keisha being like, hi, we'd like to offer you this job that you interviewed for a month ago. And I was like, oh my god, yes, I will take it. <laughs> and then she called me right back and was like, so we actually need you to start tomorrow because otherwise we can't hire you until January because of all this stuff. So oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Uh, so <laughs> I was like, I am more than happy to quit, you know, packaging up fleeces to be returned uh, and to come do this this work but it so I was working at the Ella Bean warehouse because I had uh, moved to Maine in the summer of 2016 as I just I'd been living in the Boston area and it just wasn't it wasn't quite working it felt it just didn't feel right and so I looked at a map and was like well all right Portland is small and I have a high concentration of really good friends in the area they all seem basically happy I guess I'll just... Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, no, what else are you going to do? What, what other criteria do you need? Um, and so I moved out of Boston, moved to Portland without a job. I worked on a farm that summer, and then uh, while I was busy applying to jobs, like, I don't know, 10 a week at least, because oh job God. hunting is really hard. So and when you have a bizarre and eclectic <laughs> resume, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, there's no linear relate. career path, sorry. <laughs> Um, but it, I was doing a bunch of different things and applying things and someone had sent me the, the Bowdoin job in August and I applied and then sort of forgotten about it and then interviewed and it was really great and I had a lot of fun interviewing and I was like, oh my God, I really, really want to get this, but um, you just never know. So I was like, well, just on the off chance, I'm actually going to need to eat. So I'm going to apply to work at the Beans Warehouse. So that was how I ended up here specifically. Um, but it's it turns out that all of the random wandering and the the intro that you gave me doesn't actually include all of the yeah. jobs. <laughs> I feel like every couple of months you'll just pop in like, oh, I was also in control. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I mean, why not? But it turns out that all of those things that didn't make any sense and if someone from any career planning office looked at my resume, they'd be like, oh, sweetheart, we need to sit down and talk to you about things. Um, I, mean, I, had, I had a job interview once for a bookstore where the guy was like, uh, you, you know this job is inside, right? Like, I'm looking at your resume and you mostly have worked outside. Are you going to be okay in a building? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't get that job. Um, so what has been great is that because I work with so many students and there's so many different things that people are interested in, the fact that I have uh, like a Smithsonian library worth of just weird stuff <laughs> that I've done that all pertain, and in my mind and in my heart, it all pertains to environmentalism mm -hmm. and sustainability. Mm -hmm. So it's really helpful if someone's like, you know, I was thinking about container farming and I'm like, oh, give me a second. I think I know somebody that was like trying to do that at the South Pole, if you'd be interested in talking to them <laughs> about it. So it, it's worked out 
remarkably well mm -hmm. as an outreach coordinator to have just this wide, wide range of eclectic things. And it was, I feel so fortunate to have um, interviewed with and to work for Keisha because she looked at my resume and was like, oh, yes, this person has like all these weird things. This is going to work perfectly. Whereas I've had other people that are like, hmm, do you just have trouble focusing, honey? Is that the problem? We don't really need you. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I got here. Is that answer or you want, you want more stories? <laughs> Oh, each one of those jobs, like, <laughs> with a story to tell. I, I love mean, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, funny enough, I feel like your, all of your pertinent jobs leading you to this one specific spot has also sort of made its way into the positions that you assign. Um, last semester, I was the, you you termed it hedgehog for Holden this right, year. Right, right. Um, you requested that rather than gopher. Right, than gopher. Gopher groundhog. Um, yeah. Which is a fun position. I think I put you on the installment as uh, sustainability emergency management, just right. as like in case there was a backup thing because you weren't fully available, but you wanted to like you know stay involved if you could. Mm -hmm. So that way it was you were there, but only when you needed to be. Right, <laughs> which is on my resume to this day. Excellent. <laughs> I will provide a reference at any time. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> okay, um, so sort of talking about all these things, um, we were interested in learning about sort of what your favorite part of the job was um, and I guess the lessons you've learned from this work mm -hmm. um, and maybe looking towards the future, like what projects you're excited to be working on at Bowdoin. Yeah. Uh, well, hands down, my favorite part of the job is working with the students. Um, I've always really liked education things, but I have never felt that I had the right character for any sort of classroom or academic teaching. So being able to work with young people which <laughs> makes me sound really old when I say it. But you're at such interesting points in your lives and being able to help you figure out parts of what you're doing and, and in the sustainability context, helping people find the what sort of environmental work feels right for them is hugely rewarding. And it's, I feel like there's, um, there's so much of the job that I describe to my friends as being an environmental therapist because <laughs> it's uh, the number of students that come into my office and are like, ah, uh, so I just took this class and I just learned this thing and it's really upsetting and like I don't really know what to do. And the ways in which my job enables me to sit down with students and talk through like, oh, okay, no, that is super upsetting. Like let's let's not dispute that like <laughs> that is a dire fact that you have learned. But how can we how can we find you something to do that you find um, meaningful and that there's a sense of efficacy with and mm -hmm. it's not just window dressing like oh you're sad about climate change do you want a sticker like yeah. that's that's not real yeah. um so that's really fun in the in the day to day and then um the the more structural sustainable things i i'm really excited about the sustainability implementation committee i think they do great work and it's um it's really fun to be part of that and that's the uh, staff, faculty, student, administration board that sort of figures out what sustainable direction to um, the school should go in. They were the folks that in 2008 came up with the first climate action plan and stated the goal of being carbon neutral by 2020. 
And that's also the same group that when it became apparent that we could become carbon neutral two years early, that was the group that was meeting and then um, got the, the go-ahead from administrators to be like, you know, why don't we just do this and become carbon neutral and then we can move on to the next thing because if, if, we, can, if we can be better sooner, why wouldn't we? Um, and so that's, that is just a really exciting thing to be, uh, to be part of. Yeah. yeah, that's so awesome, by the way, that yeah. that happened. Very yeah, I, I mean, I also, in the intro, you talked about how I was uh, instrumental in the, <laughs> I wasn't, I got here, like, I showed up in November of 2016, and by, like, the winter of 2017, it was already a discussion of, like, oh my gosh, we could be carbon neutral pretty soon, like, looking at mm-hmm. the, the emissions numbers and everything, so I got to show up late and take all the credit, really, <laughs> it's, it's not me, I didn't do it, you should talk to Keisha. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, So kind of going off of that, um, maybe like comparing Bowdoin with peer institutions, how do you feel about the college's work so far towards sustainability? Like, are you satisfied? Like, what what, what are some next steps? Um, Yeah. Can just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, Overall, I'm really satisfied with it. I think that it can't... um, it can't be said enough how how exciting it is to be at an institution where uh, students aren't still trying to convince a president that um, climate change is real. Um, and when I've talked to people who are at um, peer institutions or just at other colleges and universities, the idea that we have an administrative administration that is supportive of environmental and sustainable work is enormous like and that that just I think that sometimes it, at Bowdoin students get frustrated because they're like mm-hmm. oh we're not doing everything like we're not yeah. doing everything and like we're carbon neutral but we have wrecks and offsets and yeah. everybody who's <laughs> carbon neutral does that's sort of in um, in the definition of carbon neutrality as it is used um, what's your what's your sort of response to people like dissing carbon neutrality because because we get there through wrecks and offsets like as a piece of it Again, I was an angry 19-year-old college student also, so I I had to do a lot of work and research before I realized that, oh, these aren't, this isn't some, like, greenwashing thing. We're not paying millions of dollars to the energy market to, like, look better. Um, I think it's, I think in some ways, wrecks and offsets should be rebranded if rebranding were kind of gross sometimes because (laughs) it's not, um, it's, it's more of... An investment in a in a newer technology. So, for example, some of our carbon offsets are, and I, I really love this. Um, so, carbon <laughs> offsets uh, cover some of our emissions associated with um, the heating plant and um, a lot of the emissions associated with employee commuting, and most importantly, with waste. So, the um, the emissions of however many tonnages of uh, garbage and recycling and compost are hauled away, which Marie knows quite well from her first time <laughs> with us. And Diego, you know from the uh, the move out when we yeah. were trying to divert all of that waste. So the emissions associated with that, we need to balance them out some way, and that's where the carbon offset program comes in, and this is where, I mean, every school has to make the choices that feel right for them, and you can get carbon offsets for uh, protecting forests, which, Marie, you're looking into and for the next climate action plan, or you can get them in a whole variety of ways, and there basically is a, um, 
a whole bouquet of options. And the one that we selected as the Sustainability Implementation Committee last spring is to um, buy our carbon offsets from a landfill in Massachusetts and it invests in landfill gas capture so that we're not like off-gassing more methane from the uh, landfill into the atmosphere, which I think we can all agree is a bad idea, like more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, not good. Bad idea. Uh, <laughs> we do not support that. So our carbon offsets help to capture that. And while there are definitely um, carbon offset programs out there that have um, that are prettier and it's like, oh, well, we're going to do cook stoves in India and grasslands of Tanzania, and all of those are great options. But what I really like is that our carbon offsets, the things that people get cranky about, we are investing in a technology that helps to balance our waste. And as long as we're putting things into landfills, then I feel like we have a just moral responsibility mm -hmm. to try and improve the climatic health of those landfills. So I think the like the actual unsexiness of our carbon yeah. offsets is incredibly fascinating. <laughs> like it's such a good story and it balances it out so well. So when people have uh, questions about renewable energy credits and offsets, and it can get really esoteric, um, I'm always happy to explain it. And I had um, a couple of folks in the office this this fall who were some who work for the office and some who just had questions, and we were talking through what it is because with renewable energy credits, it involves making green energy more financially viable so that a solar farm can actually compete on the energy market with a coal burning power plant and i think that that's where what what Rex and offsets allow us to invest in is fascinating and it's also kind of appalling what the um what prices the energy market is on like we're not spending millions and millions of dollars on Rex and offsets we're spending like me about one full Bowdoin tuition on Rex and offsets. Like it changes a little bit every year, but it's not, no one's paying a million dollars to look good. We're paying like mm -hmm. tuition and it's crazy that that's the energy market, but that's yeah. what it is yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah. gross, kind of good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of blown away by yeah. that price figure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I um, mean, it may have, I haven't looked at it yet this year, but that's like we're in, in the ballpark of tuition. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas trying to get the same level of energy reduction on campus, I, I'm assuming at this point would be not technologically feasible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that's like part of the big question, right? Is like what is monetarily and technologically feasible in in sort of like weighing weighing the options, right? How, where do you want to invest your your energy? Yeah. And that's part of how uh, how decisions are made of what is the payback of something, like what is the mm -hmm. uh, the energy cost of building it versus its payback versus how many emissions it'll save to do this. And it's really, um, it's never quite as simple as it seems, but it's always more interesting than you think it would be right. if you, you know, like nerdy data <laughs> things, which we all do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like the, can you talk a little bit about like the biggest, the biggest like, um, carbon output on campus and like what it would cost to to change that. I that sort of like gets me thinking about like if we're gonna spend college a, the price of college tuition on buying these refs and recs and offset that get us to carbon neutrality versus um, like fixing up a system on on campus. Um, yeah. It, 
Yeah, so the biggest uh, energy, the biggest source of emissions on campus is the heating plant, and part of that is just because we're in Maine, it's chilly much of the time, and so we have a more vibrant heating plant uh, than many other schools in different parts of the country. Um, and so that's, that's sort of our, um, our biggest actual source of emissions, and so and we're looking at what other options might be for a different heating source, or if we could start pulling buildings off of the heating plant so that it could be it would be differently efficient if it if it weren't like all buildings relying on it. That was one of the one of the reasons that the Park Row apartments were built to be passive house, and that um, passive house design principles are being used for Harpswell is that because they're so well insulated, they stay warm longer, so there's less energy that's needed to heat them. So those those decisions were made with an idea of reducing the reliance on the heating plant. And so there's that idea of as campus expands, how do we, how do we build more intelligently so that we don't need to rely on this thing that is already overburdened. And it is, it's pretty much as inefficient as its type of system can get. So it's, I mean, they're doing a great job with what the heating plant is, but if we could have other buildings that are doing a differently great job, that would be great. I mean, like like anything that's going to be resilient, you need a diversity of, I mean, in this case, like an ecosystem of buildings and energy. Like it, you need to have different things doing different things well. And so if you just have, I mean, if you just have one source for electricity and you just have one source for heat, then if something happens, like, I don't know, there's a huge October storm and the power goes out, then hypothetically, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's more resilient to have uh, more things on different but interconnected systems, so that there's a fluidity. And in terms of the the costs and the choices that are being made with the heating plant, I don't have that actual information. I'm not trying to like keep anything from you. We're just it's at a at a crux point with um, figuring out the the next generation of the climate action plan to see what looks like it's going to be viable. <laughs> and there's um, there's a, a company that's doing a comprehensive energy master plan for Bowdoin right now, and we'll incorporate their findings and their suggestions into the climate action plan and definitely figuring out how to increase the efficiency of the current heating plant. And some of that will probably be pairing buildings off and then also looking at different fuel sources and then the infrastructure of how to like how to heat all of it. It's just, it is a big investment to, to shift from that heat source. And we don't wanna, like no one's trying to shut the heating plant down completely. Like they're really good at what they do. <laughs> Um, we kind of need them. Yeah, it gets cold otherwise, and I, I feel like that's the um, in term. Now that we know though that the heating is the biggest source of emissions on campus, I feel like getting people to keep their windows shut now that it's heating season. <laughs> it's like the new turn off the lights yeah. um, because the the thermostats are reactive. So if you're if it's 80 degrees in your room and you open the window and there's a cold breeze that comes in, the thermostat's gonna be like, oh my god. Like there's a breeze that's down to 60 and it'll start pumping more heat out. So then it's like your room gets hotter while you've tried to make it cooler. It's slightly more complex than that, but also not not really. So that's, <laughs> that's why we're asking people to shut windows. <laughs> it's for the planet. It's I feel like that's an explanation that a lot of people have needed, but don't always get from like the stickers saying like, you know, right. similar to flip it off. Yeah, or, well, we need to like... I don't know, shut the, shut the window campaign, window, something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is funny, I mean, I was saying earlier, like, oh, 
here's a sticker, you want to save the planet, sorry about <laughs> the things, but the, the ways in which we're able to use stickers as a way for students to be motivated to make change, it's, I think it also helps as sort of a signifier of, I mean, it's like any, any symbology that sort of creates like, oh, you're on, you're on my team, like you see somebody else yeah. with the, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the eco reps and sustainability student employees all have buttons from the office and and even though everybody doesn't know each other i feel like there's the like oh hey same right. button I same team <laughs> have that moment where it's like i don't know that person but nice button. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah same goes for like you see someone in the dining hall wearing their like bone yeah, sustainability, like, sustainability t-shirt sure. with the 21 un you know sustainability goals yeah, i'm like yes new friend. <laughs> the nice one not the not the electric green but yeah all of the like conversation and the heating plant compared to like an experience showering in the woods kind of reminds you how much infrastructure and energy goes into uh living the lives that we do like yeah. there's just so much mm-hmm. behind it like a literal shower with warm water it's like yeah and like warm buildings just takes a lot especially sometimes, for this size yeah. campus <laughs> yeah there's um. sometimes where i'll be taking a, a long hot shower because i love them <laughs> i also eat bacon i'm that kind of environmentalist um and i'll think about just the the human labor that i experience trying to take my little like tepid weasel rule shower and be like, this <laughs> <Yeah>. is ridiculous <laughs> what but that is that goes into the convenience of it and it's it's just it's fascinating how complicated it is yeah yeah right yeah, that that's what it has been like thinking about scale um, and like the importance of individual action versus collective action as and people like argue about it, but and I don't really want to like get into a conversation like justifying like what we do in the sustainability office, but a lot of our questions are pinned on the the idea that it's sort of sort of like a moral obligation of us individually and us as like a a sustainability office to um like shepherd sustainability forward as like in the position that we have as this elite liberal arts college with a fairly large endowment um i guess the question is like to what extent do you think that it's like our obligation or like yeah um, i mean personally i think that everybody and again, this is this is my position as Bethany, not my position as the sustainability outreach coordinator. But I think that everybody sort of has a moral obligation to um, to make things better. And part of this comes from my parents reading my sisters and I, Miss Rumpheus, like <laughs> a few too many times, probably. Like you have to make the world a better place, and that it, like that's just something that is baked into how I grew up. But in terms of Bowdoin and liberal arts schools and sustainability, again, as a product of a small liberal arts school, um, I think that sustainability requires a liberal arts um, attitude. Like, you have to be able to to pull from different things and you have to be able to approach things differently if we... Um, if we leave sustainability and climate change solutions only to the engineers, we're missing out on a lot. If we leave it only to poets, we're definitely missing out on a lot. <laughs> but if we put them together, then we get something towards a functional, pleasant, livable world. And I think that there are ways in which a liberal arts college can model that. I think that the Rue Center is a great example of interdisciplinary synthesis. Um, and I think it's um, if if Bowdoin 
is a, um, a environmental environmentally leading school, um, then I think that it is absolutely obvious that we keep doing as much as we can. And I feel like in in general, we're doing a, a pretty great job. There's always more that can be done, and I think that there is sort of a uh, people sort of culturally shy away from just you don't want to congratulate yourself too much and pray to be like we are the best <laughs> but also I think it's important to take a step back and be like no we're we're doing a really good job and the idea of positive motivation for like I mean that's what the carbon neutrality thing of like we can do this early and then we can move on to the next thing and like being being better sooner is is great and having that sort of sustainability is going to require everybody um, and does and I think that's that's really fun to have in the sustainability office of we have so many different people working on different things and that's that is really to to our benefit if we made students only be first-year eco reps or only be researching transportation plans or something then people work better when they're invested in it so finding finding the work that needs to be done and the student that wants to do that work is a really interesting like ecosystem niche matchup yeah. mm-hmm. and that's where bethany taylor comes in <laughs> so my coordinating the mayhem of everything yeah, it's like kermit and the muppets it's awesome <laughs> um so looking forward um what kind of changes do you want to see for bone and sustainability maybe in like next 20 years hmm. Uh, well, uh, and this sort of like big question, <laughs> yeah, big question, yeah. and sort of goes along like the lines of the climate action plan. Um, telling us what you can reveal, and, yeah. and understanding well, that a lot of like, it is it's not so much that it's fully confidential, it's just that it is so much in it's work formation. In progress. It's like yeah. looking at the primordial soup and being like, Tell me about the creatures <laughs> they're gonna walk out of there. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think that one of the biggest things about sustainability to me is that it does involve stewardship and maintenance. Um, and so there's not like a, there's no set and forget with it. And sort of like with any living working system, it requires care. And um, so in, in 20 years, sustainability will have evolved to be something different than what it is. But it's, it's never, we're never going to get to a point where it's like, well, pff, Thank goodness that's done. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm out. Um, there's always there's always innovation. There's always something more. There's always something that can be improved. And I think that's really exciting. Like it's not it's not this Sisyphean task where you're like, oh, this boulder is so heavy. I keep trying to push it uphill, but like, oh, it's exhausting. Because we're a school, we have we get like just a shot in the arm of new energy every year from first year students coming in. And when these wonderful seniors like you guys um, wrap up your time here and have have gone off to the wonderful things you're going to do, whatever they are. Uh, there's there's more people coming in, so I think particularly the sustainability and stewardship at a school is fascinating because it always has to evolve to to who the the ecosystem of the school mm. is, and so I think it'll be fascinating to see what happens in 20 years. I I don't know. Maybe we'll have solar on all the buildings maybe they'll all be geothermal and maybe they'll all be like we'll tear everything down and decide that like passive house timber frames the way to go (laughs) um but i think that there is i mean sort of like your experience marie with uh coastal studies even though people had different experience there is this common thing Mm -hmm. and people in 20 years will be able to recognize the the sustainability like there there will be a common thread because the changes are so incremental Mm -hmm. yeah 
Um, I guess lastly, back to Bethany Taylor, the Bethany Taylor. <laughs> I'm not the only one. There's a, there's a couple. B others. Taylor too. <laughs> <laughs> um, outside the outside the office, um, how are you enjoying your time up here in, you know, turning frigid Maine? Well, I ski, so that helps, and I also uh, read a lot and enjoy craft projects, so that really helps with, like, the dark November season when it's, there's not, going outside isn't an immediate source of joy, (laughs) 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 Uh, but, I mean, along with um, walking across the Androscoggin River every day to get to kindergarten and that being similar here, I grew up spending a week with my family at Popham Beach every year. We had, there were like three families that got together and rented a house and it was six adults and six kids so the parents could rotate through who was making sure nobody was drowning. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, that place is so special to me. That's one of the reasons that it's really nice to live here. So I probably go there for some reason, at least twice a month, even if it's just like sometimes it's uh, I want to go for a run on the beach or my uh, my goal is to hit the tide and weather right so that I can ski on the beach because what? skiing by the ocean is like worlds colliding and like all good interdisciplinary things. It's so fun. <laughs> it makes your head explode. Um, like skiing on the on the sand? Like um, the wet well, sand? Yeah, I got that snow. done last year. I'm really hoping for snow. Oh. Um, but skiing on frozen sand does does have a particular appeal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's let's see. I feel like the um, one of the highlights of my week, and this is I think really funny because it it totally makes sense to me, but it's incongruous in light of my uh, my work. Is uh, a dear friend subscribed me to Us Weekly. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Only a dear friend would know to do uh, that. Yes, yes. Um, and so uh, it is really great after um, a, long, a long day of doing sustainability things to like make some tea and sit down and uh, leaf through horrible things and weirdness <laughs> happening to celebrities that I have no idea who they are. Um, By the end of your subscription, you will, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I mean, and, like, I just know, like, oh, that's the girl that did that, and, like, oh, okay, okay, that's interesting. Threads are forming. But it's also, I think that there is this, um, when you when you do a lot of environmental work or if you get really down to the nitty-gritty in any niche, you sort of think that everybody thinks that, and it's... Mm. Um, I feel like in some ways reading Us Weekly is me being like, oh, that's right. Not everybody is excited about carbon offsets with landfill <laughs> gas. Like, some people are really excited about those super cute shoes. Um, so it's uh, it's sort of balancing in some ways, and it's mm-hmm. also hilarious. Yeah. And then, let's see. Um, uh, I sort of oddly watch a lot of BBC murder mystery shows, like... The, the smaller and quainter the village and the stranger the, the crimes committed, <laughs> the better, which is odd. And if it has to connect to sustainability, then I think that it's, and it, it doesn't have to, but it's me, so it always does. Um, <laughs> the idea of seeing these small, ancient villages in a modern context mm. is really yeah. interesting because if, if a society is sustainable, it means it's still there. Um, yeah. Or if it's still there, it means it's sustainable. Um, Only you would pull that out. (laughs) I did take notes beforehand. (laughs) Very nicely sent me the question, so I'm not just, uh, (laughs) for an hour, which would be exhausting. Well, Um, I hope you're not too exhausted, Ashley. No, no, this is great. Um, Do you have any other 
questions. This is really fun. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any, like, more party thoughts? <laughs> just, like, just anything. I don't know. Is there um, anything in particular you've been, like, thinking about a lot recently? Uh, yes. Um, I was listening to something on NPR. I don't believe it was a podcast, but it might have been. And this woman was talking about some social science research that she was doing. I think she was, it was about time management specifically, and she'd done all this research about it, and the interviewer was like, so how does this work out for you? She's like, oh, God, I'm late constantly. <laughs> but, and she had this story about someone she knew that was um, a physicist, and they always explain, like, well, I'm a physicist, and I understand gravity, but I still fall down. <laughs> and I think about that a lot in, in context of the, the eco-reps and the student employees we have, where some of them will run into folks in their dorm who, are who like to play, like, get the eco-rep, and be like, eco-rep, I noticed that you accidentally left the light on Hell in the yeah. shower. Mm -hmm. And I think that there, that sort of comes, comes across in a lot of different ways. But the idea that just because sustainability and environmental people know something, it doesn't mean that we're able to change it ourselves. Um, mm. So, I mean, it, we're, all, we're all in a bigger system, and I think it's really not, it's definitely not fair for people to, like, expect their like eco-rep to, to, yeah, purity is just ridiculous. Um, and I think that that also plays itself out in bigger and cultural ways, not so much at Bowdoin, but in in the larger context, it's sort of um, the the hippies are not the only people that cause climate change, so it really shouldn't be just on them to solve these things. And I think that that often gets put, um, put just on the people who know and care about things. And it's just, it's... It's not really helpful because if something is based on structural inequity and resource extraction and you have someone who's like, I was thinking canvas bags and bikes and, you know, a potluck maybe, <laughs> then like that, that alone can't save it. And to expect people to, to fix problems that are bigger than them is just not, mm. not fair. Um, it reminds me a lot of when, like, having uh, white people get involved in racial justice issues, and that is, it can be problematic, but also the idea of seeing whiteness as part of the racial discussion, and also um, when the um, like conversations about feminism starting to incorporate men, and particularly with violence against women, mm -hmm. like that's kind of a male problem, largely, <laughs> because who is committing this violence, and like, Yes, we have environmentalists who are like, yes, we want renewable energy, we want to do this, and we want to fight the structures that are making it really hard to do all of these really progressive and wonderful and like good for everybody things. But when, when the um, when the people who are talking about it are the, the people who are also supposed to be responsible for it, like we need we need everybody to be involved in solving these issues. Yeah, that's a good way to leave it off. Yeah. Bethany, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking to us in this format about the things that we discuss constantly in the sustainability office. We'll let you get back to saving the planet and your murder mysteries. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. 
Each episode, featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members, will be available after the show here on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu slash sustainability under the green tea tab. You can also find show notes here. If you'd like to share any stories or thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Please email Marie at m-s-c-a-s-p-a-r. That's m-s-caspar at bowdoin.edu. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of Season 1. Thanks for listening.